First published in 2013, Daniel James Brown tells the amazing story of the 1936 Olympics in his book, The Boys in the Boat. It's a story about nine Americans on their quest for the Olympic gold medal. Historically great crew teams, rowing crew teams, uh, not crew, C-R-U, great crew teams come from universities like Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. Some have viewed this sport as belonging to, to those with an um, aristocratic er, degree. No one imagined that the crew team that represented the United States in 1936 at the Olympics would come from the state of Washington. These young men were farmers. They came from logging towns and shipyards. To get to the Olympics, they had to beat all of the teams in California and then face the teams in New England, and they beat them one at a time. What made the, the crew team from Washington so great? The answer is it was teamwork. Daniel James Brown writes this, The greatest paradox of the sport has to do with the psychological makeup of the people who pull the oars. Great oarsmen and oarswomen are necessarily made of conflicting stuff, of oil and water, fire and earth. On the one hand, they must possess enormous self-confidence, strong egos, and titanic willpower. Nobody who does not believe deeply in himself or herself, in his or her ability to endure hardship and to prevail over adversity, is likely even to attempt something as audacious as a competitive rowing at the highest levels. The sport offers so many opportunities for suffering, so few opportunities for glory, that only the most tenaciously self-reliant and self-motivated are likely to succeed at it. And yet at the same time, this is the key. No other sport demands and rewards complete abandonment of self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength. They may have outstanding coxswains or oarsmen or bowmen. They have no stars. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscles, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in motion becomes is all that matters. Not the individual, not the self. It's about the team. You know, in a similar way, that's what the church is about. It was designed to be about teamwork. Teamwork under the direction of Jesus. Our passage today pictures this kind of teamwork in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 16. That's the passage that I read earlier it's found on page uh, 812 or 1175 if you're using one of the bridge Bibles. And you have an outline in your program if you'd like to follow. When we think of the bridge, and here's the first point. Jesus has resourced our church with people. Jesus has resourced our church with people. He's the one um, who's resourced us. When you think about it, the reason you're here today during this time and this location is because Jesus brought you here today. Um, when you think of the bridge, 
Some people in the bridge are team leaders. Some people are team leaders. Some people have been designated to be leaders. And when we look at the passage in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a couple of things we should note. First, I want to go back to verse 7. So I tricked you. I didn't include verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. To each one of us. And Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, to every believer in the church, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then the passage says uh, between verses 7 and verse 11 that Jesus ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. This is what I didn't say all of this, but when he did, victorious over sin and death after the resurrection, that he gave gifts to men, that he poured out gifts as a victor. And it says here, verse 7, each one was given grace. Now, everybody was given grace at salvation, but that's not what this is talking about. This is already assuming that these people have experienced that grace that comes with salvation, forgiveness of sins. But this grace is about the kind of gifting, spiritual gifts, that Jesus has given because of his his ascension in heaven and because he has won the victory. He has apportioned grace, which becomes spiritual abilities or spiritual gifts, uh, to the church. And we go to verse 11. So Christ himself gave, and here are some of the the people he has gifted and given to the church. This is in the first century. So Christ gave the apostles, a group of people who've been gifted, the prophets, another group, and then he mentions the third group, the evangelists, and then he mentions a fourth group, and I believe this is one group, pastors and teachers. Uh, There's only one definite article, and it goes with both. Could be two groups, but I think this is one group, pastors and teacher, or the gift of pastor-teacher, or the gift of teaching pastor. Um, First, we're going to start with apostles and prophets. The apostles, as I understand the New Testament, were a select few. It included the 12 disciples of Jesus, but not Judas. He took his life before Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected. And... Um, they were people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And that was one of the early requirements of the church. An apostle was somebody who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. An apostle was somebody who was sent with authority by Jesus. Jesus called the disciples, and then he called them apostles. This is in the, we saw this in the Gospel of Mark. Um, And uh, so the apostles would have included the 12 in Acts. Matthias is added. And uh, James, the Lord's brother, he he witnessed the risen Christ. And he becomes apostle. There are a few others. Perhaps Timothy becomes an apostle. A few others. It's a very small group of people. Because after these people die, nobody alive qualified to be an apostle, as is described in the New Testament. Um. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, kind of describes uh, what happens in in the ministry of the apostles. Now, this is kind of a unique group, and I I want to take a a few minutes here to try to explain how they are unique and why I don't think we have people like this in the church today. I don't mean that God can't do miracles because he does miracles whenever he wants to. This is a unique group of people. 
The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. This just didn't happen every once in a while. This was just kind of a normal part of their ministry. Signs and wonders. They were miraculous events. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. God used these miraculous events to draw people to Jesus, to listen to the message of the apostles, who Jesus is, why he came, that he died on the cross for them. That was the purpose. Next slide. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that the least Peter's shadow might follow them and some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by the impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This was unique, very powerful. God's power, very present. People were healed. People, um, miraculous events. I'm going to say it again. I believe God does miraculous events today. Not like this. This was because of the presence of Jesus and the new message about Jesus dying on the cross. The gospel. This was to establish that message. Um, Prophets were people who gave new revelation from God. So I think it's more than somebody who's just forth-telling. Some people would say, well, I'm a prophet because I'm forth-telling the scripture. Maybe. That's not what I uh, think this uh, refers to in Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's a select group of people who could foretell the future. This is extremely important because Jesus died around 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., Some scholars believe he was born in 4 B.C. because our calendars aren't perfect. So Jesus dies in that 30 A.D. time period. The last book in the New Testament is not written until 95 A.D. There's 65 years right there where we don't have the entire Bible. And even by 95 A.D., how many people have the entire New Testament? Very few, very few. What were the prophets do? They were teaching Scripture. They were teaching revelation from God about the meaning and significance of the death of Christ to the churches. It's an important role. If he, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 uh, describes uh, what, what was happening during this time. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. So the message spoken through angels is a reference to the law of the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, where God spoke through angels and wrote it on stone. That's what that's referring to. The message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? What salvation? Well, the salvation that Jesus brought when he died on the cross, this brand new thing in the life of the church in the first century. This salvation, the salvation that you and I have by faith in Jesus Christ, which was first announced by the Lord. That's what Jesus did. He announced something new coming. He announced the gospel of the kingdom, something new. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Well, who heard him? The disciples who became the apostles of the early church. They heard it, and now their job is to confirm it. How did that happen? Next slide. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit 
distributed according to his will. God confirmed it through miraculous events, signs, and wonders. It was a part of the ministry of the apostles. It was the book of Acts. Okay? There's a lot of stuff that happens in the book of Acts that's very miraculous. It's very important as well. Ephesians chapter 2, back to the book of Ephesians, Apostle Paul uh, tells us about the role of the apostles and prophets, a further explanation. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's talking to Ephesians who are Gentiles, not Jewish. Before, they were strangers to the promises of God. Only the Jewish people, the nation Israel, had the promises of God. Now, because of Christ, the message of God goes to all people throughout the world. And these people in Ephesus, who were Gentiles, are now citizens with God's people. A dividing wall, a barrier has been torn down, and now there's going to be a new unity created in the, in the body of Christ. And uh, citizens with God's people and also members of his household, another description of the church, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Please see that. There is a foundation to this structure, and the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. That was their ministry. And um, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin, and he formed the first most important um, stone in the building of the church. And he's the cornerstone. And you don't lay the cornerstone over and over again, and Jesus doesn't die over and over again. It's done. It's totally complete. It's enough. And then the apostles came, historically, in the book of Acts, and they laid the foundation. The foundation's been laid. Praise God. And now Jesus is building his church one life at a time, and it's called the Holy Temple. In him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is a spiritual structure, not a physical structure. And Jesus is growing this holy temple one life at a time. When you place your faith in Christ, you were added into this spiritual structure as a part of this. Next slide. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. So God lives in you individually, and God lives in his church corporately. The whole structure. And that's just apostles and prophets. Now we're going to talk about pastors and teachers. Um, so evangelists are people who uh, spread the good news and help people understand the gospel. But I wanted to take a minute and explain that because that's a question that always comes about. What about apostles and prophets for today? Personally, I don't think they are for today. I think there are, uh, God can do miraculous events whenever he wants to. He can heal whenever he wants to. He can, there's a lot of things he can do whenever he wants to. But I don't think he's given apostles and prophets like they were given in the New Testament today. So evangelists are people who spread the good news and help people understand the gospel. They seem to have a skill to make it easy to understand and easy to um, embrace. And God seems to bless people who are evangelists with great fruit. In other words, they share the gospel and it just seems to be easy for them to lead people to Christ. Where some of us can share the gospel, and it can be very difficult sometimes. And we try, and we try, and we try. But sometimes an evangelist just comes in, they share it. Oh, they get it. 
That's a gift. Uh, the next part is pastor and teachers. Again, I think this probably refers to one person, one gift together. This is the ability to lead and to guide God's flock. Um, the ability to teach God's word to the church. Titus was a young pastor. Paul told him to appoint elders. There's a transition and hap- transition happening in the New Testament. We had apostles and prophets, and they, they built a foundation for this church. And then there had to be a new structure begin to develop. And here's how it got started, Titus chapter 1. Paul told Titus, the reason I left you in Crete, that's an island in the Mediterranean, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul is giving this pastor the responsibility to appoint elders in the first churches on the island of Crete. There's a model that's starting to happen. And now we have a description of what an elder should be. This is very important for our church because we have elders. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Next slide. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. And by the way, that's not perfect. It's just the idea that he stands as a man of integrity through this list, that he has godly character, that he's growing and he's becoming like Jesus. When he makes a mistake, he admits it. He's not perfect. When he sins, he confesses his sin. He's not overbearing. He's not quick-tempered. He's not given to drunkenness. He's not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Last slide. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. That would be the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So these, we are to have leaders today who are spiritually qualified, and this comes from the New Testament. And these are the standards we have for leaders. We want these standards to be in place at the bridge. And you get to help affirm that. When we have an election for elders, you get to help affirm that. If, if these people don't qualify, you should go no on it. You should vote no. No affirmation for this. Uh, the Apostle Peter describes this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, To the elders among you, to the churches, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. See, there he's an apostle. He's a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here's the command to the leaders. Be shepherds of God's flock. A leader is to be a shepherd. And the flock is a description of the church. So there's this shepherd flock uh, metaphor here. Be shepherds. That's a stand-up role. That's a going-forward role. It's leading-ahead role. It's helping. It's guiding. It's protecting role. It's not necessarily... Yes, shepherds should be kind. It's not necessarily the picture of Jesus holding the baby lamb all the time. Sometimes people get confused that this is only what a shepherd does is hold baby lambs. The shepherd's out in front, and the shepherd has to persevere. He goes through all kinds of weather, 
all kinds of trials, all kinds of ups and downs. And uh, he's got to be out front. He's got to be strong. So be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Last slide. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So some are leaders, some are team players. Verse 12, and that's all of us together. And these leaders, pastors and teachers, verse 11, are verse 12, to equip his people, that is Jesus' people, for works of service. Some are team players. That, that's leaders and team members together. We are the team. We all have to be team players, working and serving together. And the pastor-teacher's job is to prepare God's people. Leaders are to prepare God's people, to equip them, to equip, to prepare, to train for what lies ahead, for where we should go, so that um, for works of service, to equip his people for works of service. Uh, I grew up in a day, and there's been a major, there's been a major shift in the church in my lifetime. I grew up in a day when there was this term minister, and a minister was a clergy person. A minister was the professional. He got paid to be a Christian. I get paid to be a Christian. I get paid to be good, and you have to be good for nothing, right? (laughs) That's what volunteers are. (laughs) No. So this major shift has happened, and and when I grew up, the pastor did almost everything. And it didn't really count unless the pastor did it. He was the important one. And he did the hospital visitation, he did the sermons, and he did the scripture reading, and he presided over every important meeting. And sometimes he um, mowed the lawn and cleaned the bathrooms at church and did the vacuuming of the carpet, and he did everything. And there, there was a major breakdown on this whole thing about who the pastor is, call it clergy and laity, or who the volunteers are. And it was unbiblical, and it was very unhealthy for the church. And uh, over time, there's been a major shift because of this passage, because it's about the role of the pastor is to equip so that the church can do the ministry of everything we do. That Some of those things are Sunday morning that we described on our screen. Some of those things are care ministries that happen during the week or happen through our small groups. It's about the church. It's about God's people serving, doing the work of ministry. So the team is God's people and God's leaders. Now, I'm going to pick up the pace. Some, secondly, Jesus has given us a purpose and a goal, verses 12 and 13. Jesus has given us a purpose and a goal. The purpose, we are to serve and help our team become spiritually healthy. That's part of our purpose. When we look at the big picture, we can say, if we want to simplify the purpose and just zero in on it, it's to make disciples for Jesus and teach them to obey everything, you know? But as we make disciples, we want to produce a healthy body. We're to serve our team so that the the church can be spiritually healthy. Why? So we can make disciples. Verse 12, so that the body of Christ may be built up. The body of Christ is the church. Jesus is the head of the body. 
And we are individually, when you think of the body of Christ, we are individually members of the body. Consider yourself a body part. Are you a hand, a leg, an eye, a foot, an elbow? You're a body part. I'm a body part. Together, we all make up the body of Christ. And we are to serve so that this body can be healthy, can be built up, can be nourished. Uh, Healthy bodies heal after trauma. Healthy bodies recover after sickness. And by the way, we all go through seasons of life. So I just want, you know, sometimes you can't volunteer because you're in a season of life where you just, there's no margin. That's okay. That's okay. It happens to all of us. We need to pull back. We need to rest. We can't do all those commitments. Give yourself permission. But over time, we get healthy and we come back. Um, As healthy bodies recover, that's true of healthy churches. Spiritually alive organisms that grow and heal, they get exhausted and they need to have rest and they need to be restored and sometimes they need to be healed. And that happens in the body. Next, the goal. We are to serve to help team members grow into spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4.13. We are to serve until we all reach unity in the faith. We are to reach a unity in the faith. This is the goal that Jesus has for us. He wants us to become um, like-minded, that we develop this mindset that Jesus had. It's the same attitude that Jesus had, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It's the same mind that Jesus had. And it's, we're about His kingdom. We're about His priorities. And we come under the Lordship of Christ and... Um, we, we pursue this unity in our faith. And then next, it's and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. We're to grow up spiritually. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in this knowledge of the Son of God, it's really important that we teach who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing today, where he is right now, what, and uh, where he wants us to go. That... He died on the cross. That's the gospel, that we communicate that, we understand it. That he's alive and well and sits on the right hand of God right now and he's active in our world and active in our lives. Not only that, that we know, not just know about him, and not just have intellectual knowledge, but we have experience. That we know him each day. And we have a relationship with him that's growing and we're spending time with him, time in his word and time in prayer. And the, the idea is to grow attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're going to grow up spiritually, grow up to be like Jesus and be conformed to his image. And sometimes we talk about it as being a fully devoted follower of Christ. Now I want to show you several passages that describe some of the relationships we have. We're in the body. We're members of the body. And we are to relate to each other. This is how we grow. Galatians 5.13 He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Guess what? You have a whole lot of freedom. Tomorrow, you have a whole lot of freedom in your life. You can live however you want. I'm not going to come and knock on your door. Apostle Paul reminds us, don't use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Don't be selfish. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another. This is, a, this is our responsibility, and it's how we grow spiritually, by serving one another. Um, John 13, 34, and 35. This is crucial. 
Jesus said, so this is from the words of Jesus, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Please notice these are one another passages. It's about us. It's about how we relate to each other, one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, condition, if you love one another. This is the same word love that Jesus used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's sacrificial love. And we are to have this kind of sacrificial love. In fact, this word is only used of Christians in the New Testament. It's a love that only Christians can have. A non-Christian cannot have this love. A non-Christian cannot give this love. It's impossible. It only happens as a follower of Christ, God's power flows through me and extends. And I can only do that if I'm walking in the Spirit. And the good thing is I get energy to do it because of my own strength, I get really tired and exhausted. But this ability to sacrifice. This is commitment, by the way. This is what churches hang together on. This is commitment. This is really what membership is about because it's about commitment. It's not about your feelings. We have membership at the bridge. Is it biblical? Well, I'll tell you what. Commitment is biblical. And when we ask people to make a commitment to membership, we're asking them to commit to what we believe about the Bible. We're asking them to commit to serve we're asking them to commit support financially. You know what? Every one of those things is a biblical issue. It doesn't say in the Bible you have to go to membership classes, but there have been membership classes since the second century for churches about people making a commitment to their body. And one of the benefits to the body is, for example, when we have growth groups, we know that all of our growth group leaders are committed to us doctrinally, They've made their commitment to us. We, it's a, it, there's a sense of um, they're, they're aligned with us. They're standing with us. Our Bridge Kids uh, leaders, our top leaders, we want them to be already made this commitment so that we know what's being taught and that it's, it's fitting with uh, what we believe about the Bible. So this uh, loving one another, Jesus said, and the amazing thing about this, he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Jesus said, this is so powerful. If you love one another, it's just going to spill over to your neighborhood and to your workplace and to your classroom. It just does. It's just the power of God. You don't even have to try. It's just going to happen because of this commitment we have empowered by God's love. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is another one another. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do you spur somebody? What are spurs for? Sometimes we just need a little push. And in our relationship, sometimes in the body, we need a nudge. And uh, let us consider how we may encourage, let's, how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Those are good things to do. And sometimes when we come together in the, with the body, we learn of a need that, oh, I can do that. I can help. I want to help and do that. Or, oh, Somebody needs prayer. I want to pray for them. I'm going to call and check on them next week. As we come together and we, we learn these connections and we learn these things and we want to do something about them. That's how God designed us. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. There's a reason we have corporate worship. There's a place for it. There's a reason we have small groups. Don't give up on corporate worship. Don't give up on small groups. 
Don't give up on going to coffee with another friend because we get together and we encourage each other and we help each other and we, we know how to pray for each other when we meet. James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. One another passages. There's a time where we confess our sins. We, not that we have to go dump on somebody, but if I've sinned against you, I just need to confess that. And we can pray for each other. And praying for each other can bring healing. These are, these are not like divine suggestions. These are how we are to serve and love each other is by doing these things. Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's commitment. It's not, do I, how do I feel today? I'm committed. I'm in. Romans 15.7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring you praise to God. We are to accept one another. We often say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What does that mean? It means we all come to Jesus the same way. And there are some uh, powerful and influential people in the world that come to faith and they come the same way and they're all humbled at the cross because all of us are sinners. And there are people who uh, feel very weak and inferior and they come the same way and they're elevated because of the cross. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave you. This is how we are to relate to each other in the body. Lastly, Jesus wants every team member serving. And um, first, being connected to the team brings spiritual growth. Your spiritual formation happens as you're connected. If you get, you can be a believer and disconnected, but the growth just stops. Your spiritual growth happens in community with other believers, in relationships where you're serving and encouraging and helping. Um, because it says, as we do this, we'll no longer be infants and tossed back forth by waves blown from here and there by every wind of teaching. People, some Christians get so confused about what the Bible says because they never dig in and learn for themselves. They never learn from community. They never process with other believers. And they hear this and they get, oh, I'm not sure about that. And they hear this over here, oh, I'm not sure about that. Sometimes they're not sure about anything. And sometimes they, oh, this is great, this is great, and this might be false doctrine. And they get, they get off track because they don't know what the scriptures teach. They just hear it from somebody who says they're a Christian. And then verse 16, every team member must do its part. This is where we started. From the whole body, joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each does its part. As each does its part. In 1950, an IndyCar pit stop required four people to serve. They could change two tires, top off the gas. The four people included the driver, and they could do it in uh, about uh, 60 seconds. Today, an Indy crew can do a pit stop with 11 people, not including the driver, six people on the ground with the car, five people behind the wall doing support, and they can do it in eight seconds or less. Today, um, 
a Formula One racing crew has 20 or more team members serving at a pit stop. Each one knows his or her roles. Each one does their job with purpose and passion. They can handle pit stops in less than three seconds because they do it as a team, teamwork. Imagine the church where everybody's doing their part with passion and with purpose. And the gospel would be lived out. People would be coming to faith in Christ. Lives would be changed. Marriages would be changed. People would be overcoming addictions. And we do it together. Not everybody's on the front lines. Some people are behind the wall. But together, we're a powerful, powerful force. I like to close just by reminding us about the bridge serving together as volunteers. We have a little video clip.